Yeah, we just can't help but to be thankful and, and grateful. And I just praise God for the choir and just leading us in worship today. Amen. And, uh, you know, they say every day is a day of thanksgiving. Uh, but we all know that this is considered the season of thanksgiving. As we prepare our, our, ourselves for that great Thanksgiving meal, right? And uh, most of us in here uh, know what we're doing already for Thanksgiving. Some of us, we have a family tradition or ritual that we do each year. And some of you all are just looking forward to Thanksgiving to do absolutely nothing but watch football and eat turkey, right? But I just want us to, to take a moment right now, and I just want you to share with your neighbor, either your neighbor on your right or your neighbor on your left, what your plan is for Thanksgiving. Now, before you share, all right, before you share, I want you to remember two things. Number one, your neighbor is probably getting hungry right now. So don't give them the details. Don't give them the whole spread, all right? Uh, but number two, if you're not doing anything for Thanksgiving, uh, don't, don't lie. Just say, I'm, I'm chilling, I'm resting, all right? Uh, it's going to be okay. So take, take a couple minutes and just talk to the person either on your right or your left about what you have planned this year for Thanksgiving. All right. So everybody got a, a sense of what your neighbor's doing? Good. You know, some, some people uh, was just waiting on someone to ask that question because some of you have just elaborate Thanksgiving plans and elaborate tradition, and your eyes just lit up when that person asks you that question. Uh, for others, you're kind of on edge a little bit because you really hadn't planned anything. And for some of you, you ask them that, uh, your neighbor that question, and as soon as you asked that question, you knew you had just stepped on a landmine because your neighbor then proceeded possibly to give you the history of Thanksgiving and why we shouldn't celebrate it. Uh, but no matter what the answer or response was, the whole point of that exercise is to say uh, that a lot of thought goes into Thanksgiving. And everyone here knows already, even though it's, it's two weeks away, uh, what they're going to be doing for Thanksgiving. And for many of us, that Thanksgiving meal, that meal that's going to happen on that, that Thursday, is uh, the most important and the most significant meal of the year for you. Um, it's, it's, it's the meal of the year for most of us in here. And quite honestly, if you're like me, uh, there is a, a, a deep temptation to overeat. <laughs> There's a, a deep temptation to be a gluttonous. We all get a, a glutton-free pass on that day, right? Um, and, and if we're Christians, there's another temptation. And that temptation is to make Thanksgiving the most important meal of the year. Uh, but I, I'm going to argue today that it shouldn't be. I'm going to argue today that uh, our Thanksgiving meal is not the most important meal, and it's, the, it's not the most beautiful meal that we as Christians uh, get to partake in. The most beautiful meal that we get to partake in as a family, as a church, is the meal that we're going to partake in today 
which is the Lord's Supper. Sometimes we call it the Last Supper. But this, this meal is the most significant and it is the most important meal that we, that we receive. And, and I know even in just saying that, uh, you know, there's a temptation in our hearts to say, well, it's not a meal, right? <laughs> it's a cracker and it's a, a cup of juice. And that's true. But to the early church, it wasn't just bread and wine. In the early church, when Christians came together to, take, to partake in the Lord's Supper, it was a supper. It was an all-out meal. And it was supposed to be very significant and extremely important. Now, notice what I said. I said the Lord's Supper is to be the most significant and the most important meal for us. I did not say it's the most tasty, right? Uh, because I think Thanksgiving is going to, to win that. But my hope is, is that by the end of our, our time here together, by the end of the sermon, you will clearly understand and appreciate this meal more than any other meal. And that you would be able to see this meal as God intended for us to see it. When we talk about this meal, in, in a nutshell, God calls for us when we take this meal to not just eat the crackers and to, to drink the wine, but he calls for us to feast on Jesus in the depths of our hearts as we partake in it. It is, it is a call to, to feast on Jesus in our hearts together. So as we move forward and as we look at the word of God, uh, we want to, to remember uh, that the point of the passage that we're going to be looking at today and the point of this sermon is to move us to see that this time on, on Sundays when we share in this supper, it's, it's more than just a ritual. It's something that should be of most importance. If you could turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 14, and we're going to read Today, verse 12 through 25. Mark chapter 14, verse 12 through 25. And if we could stand for the reading of God's word. For the reading of God's word. And the precious word of God reads, And on the first day, of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room? where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready, there prepared for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they begin to be sorrowful and to say to him, one after another, is it I? And he said to them, it is the one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. 
For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread. And after blessing it, and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. And truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. You may be seated. think in order for us to appreciate the Lord's Supper, uh, we must first take a, a little time to appreciate uh, what it was birthed out of, which is what is called the original Passover. As Jesus and his disciples gathered, uh, they were gathering to celebrate the Jewish Passover. They were gathering to remember what God had done for the Jews in the past. The Jewish Passover was a meal that the Jews celebrated annually, just like we celebrate Thanksgiving. However, it was celebrated on a much larger scale and had a more rigid ritual. And the Passover represented a defining moment in the history of Israel. More than a thousand years before Jesus came to the earth, the Jews were enslaved in Egypt under the hand of Pharaoh. And they had been enslaved under the hand of Pharaoh for over 430 years. And in the process of delivering the Jews out of Egypt, God had sent nine horrible plagues against the Egyptians in order to show off his might and his power and in order to wage war against the gods in Egypt at the time. But plague after plague was ignored. Plague after plague only gave the Egyptians, only gave Pharaoh a a temporary conviction, a temporary sting. So what God did on the 10th plague is he hit them where he knew it would hurt. The 10th plague God then set, set out for was for the death of all the firstborn of Egypt and all the firstborn of Jews who did not trust his word. The only way that a family would not lose their firstborn is if they had sacrificed an unblemished lamb. So for every Jewish family in Egypt, at 12 midnight, either you would have a dead lamb or a dead child, firstborn. And once the lamb was slain, the lamb's blood then was applied to the doorpost of each home. And when the blood was applied to the doorposts of the home, the, the death angel came. And, and if he saw the blood, he would pass through the home because of the substitutionary sacrifice of the lamb. But if he did not see the blood on the post of each home, he would enter that home and take the life of the firstborn. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 24 through 27, Moses says this to Israel. 
He said, you shall observe this right as a statue for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And listen to this. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And after hearing this, the people bowed their heads and began to worship God. Now, the first Passover meal was held on the night before a a great deliverance. And just as the first Passover meal was held the night before a great deliverance in this text, we see that Jesus is, is holding a Passover meal with his disciples the night before an even greater deliverance. Where the first deliverance was from physical slavery. This deliverance is, is not just from physical slavery in some sense, but it's a deeper deliverance. It is a deliverance from the penalty of sin. It is a, a, a deliverance from the power of sin. It is a deliverance from one day the, the presence of sin. It is representing what God has done for his people. So as we look at chapter 14, we see a general layout of the whole chapter. Verses 1 through 9, we see an act of allegiance by a woman who shows a deep love for Jesus. Verse 10 through 11, we see an act of betrayal by Judas, the disciple of the Lord. In verse 12 through 16, we see the preparation of the Lord's Supper. And then in verse 22 through 25, we see the institution of the Lord's Supper. And for the first part of the sermon, we want to just kind of narrow in on verses 22 through 25 as we're just going to kind of focus on the institution of the Lord's Supper. Now we want to understand that Mark does not give a whole lot of detail about that meal. In fact, there's more detail given to the preparation than to the actual meal. But as we narrow in into the section, even though Jesus' words is few, and even though there's not a great detail in Mark there, there is a great meaning. Uh, Each meal that they celebrated with Passover, it's important that we know that it had four sections to it. Four sections to a Passover meal. And those four sections to a Passover, of, to the Passover meal was based off of uh, Exodus chapter 6, verse 6 through 7. Because in Exodus chapter 6, verse 6 through 7, we see four promises that God made to the Jews while they were in Israel. And the four promises was God promised that he will rescue them from from Egypt. He also promised that he would free them from slavery. He promised that he would redeem them by a divine power. And he promised that he would renew a relationship with them. So at each section of the Passover, the oldest male or an elected presider over the meal would stand up and we, he would hold a, a glass of wine and then explain to those who were there different elements of the meal. So in essence, there was four toasts that would happen at a Passover meal. Four times a presider would stand up 
and then began to recount what God had done for Israel in Egypt based off of those four promises, four toasts. Most commentators say that when Jesus stands up to make his announcement in verse 22, that this would have been right in the middle of the meal. They say that this is probably the third time that he stood up with a cup in his hand as he is, is, is moving along this great Passover ritual. Now, as Jesus stands, the disciples are expecting Jesus to stand and to go through a ritual that they've probably heard 20 times in their lives. They're, they're expecting him to remind them of the, the, the various symbols that, re, that was represented by the food. One said that, commentator said that at this point of the meal, Jesus was supposed to stand up and explain the bread and the herbs. He was supposed to stand up and say, this is the bread of affliction which your fathers ate in the wilderness. But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus stands up and instead says, as the verse says, it says he took bread and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them. And he said, take, this is my body. This is my body. So as the disciples hear this, there was probably a, a rift in their heart because they're like, wait a minute. That's not what's supposed to be said. They're probably sitting in astonishment and amazed at the fact that Jesus has just deviated from a tradition that was ingrained in them. That's like, that's like you showing up to Thanksgiving dinner and there's no turkey or Cornish hand, however you get down, right? And you're walking around, you're like, really, tacos? What? Fiesta time? What? The disciples are looking shocked and they're surprised. They're saying, what's going on? The question we have to ask is, is why did Jesus do this? And the answer is that he, he does it to point out the significance of his affliction. He takes what is already familiar to them, and he shows that there was an even greater meaning from the very institution of the Lord's Supper. That from the very time that God was instituting this, the Passover, excuse me, from the very beginning, God had a plan, and that plan was to point back to Jesus' suffering on Calvary's cross. The, the bread represents Jesus and the affliction of his body, just as the unleavened bread represented Israel's affliction and their sudden deliverance. See, see Jesus is the fulfillment of, of two pictures that we see in the Old Testament. And the disciples were having a hard time seeing him as the fulfillment. One, for, one way that Jesus, one picture that Jesus fulfilled in the Old Testament was this, this picture of a promised Messiah. This picture of a promised deliverer, one who is going to be greater than Moses. This picture of, as Daniel chapter 7 paints it, the Son of Man. But the other picture that the disciples had a hard time grasping as Jesus was trying to prepare them was, was the picture of a suffering servant. See, they read the Old Testament scriptures and they separated and they thought two people was going to come and two people were going to be of prominence and, and importance in Israel. One was going to be this great king. The other was going to be this great man who ended up suffering and dying. But Jesus is trying to show them that it's, it's one. That not only is he the, the Messiah as they 
admitted to in Mark chapter 8 as they confess to, but he's also the one that Isaiah writes about. He's also this suffering servant. Jesus heard, and as he began to talk about his death and the preceding chapters, and even in this text, if their hearts were open, they would have remembered the the words of Isaiah 53, which says, but he was wounded for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. The text is saying that that someone is going to come, someone is going to be afflicted, someone is going to die, and as a result of their affliction, as a result of their death, there's going to be a great deliverance. There's going to be peace ushered in. That's what the bread was representing. Jesus said this, take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. The wine, after Jesus turns the bread of affliction, from being just a bread that represented what God did for the Jews while they were in Egypt, Jesus now reconstructs what the wine represents. He says, the text says, and he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, which is poured out for many, gave thanks said, this is my blood. Blood. The Hebrews thought that the life of a creature resided in that creature's blood, which is true. So when Jesus said that his, his blood is going to be poured out for many, what he is saying is that his life is going to be poured out for many. The very life of him is going to come out, is going to be given for many. And that's what he said in, in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. Remember what he said? He said, the Son of Man has not come to to be served, but rather the the Son of Man has come to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus' words here is is referring to the wine. he's, he's, He's saying that this wine is representing his blood, but it's not just representing his blood, it's representing also a a new covenant a new covenant, a a new pledge, a a new promise, a a new system. In Exodus chapter 24, verse 3 through 8, Moses records that God made a new pledge with Israel. And we read in Exodus chapter 24, verse 3 through 8, that as a result of this new covenant, that God would be the people of Israel, that Israel would be his people. As a result of this new covenant, they made a bunch of sacrifices. They sacrificed animals, and they put the blood of the animals in basins. And they had all the people of Israel stand before the elders, and the elders took that blood, and they poured it on the people. They sprinkled the blood on the people. Why? Why did something have to die in order for a covenant to be made? That's, that was a, a, a way of the, of the person who was making the covenant Speaking and the person who was coming into covenant with the other person, what they were saying was that they take this covenant very serious. It's so serious that that death is surrounded by it. If I don't keep my word, may what happened to this animal happen to me. 
And if you don't keep your word, may what happens to this animal, may it happen to you. The covenant was sealed by necessity with the blood of a sacrificial animal. Moses took it and he sprinkled it on the people. When Jesus stands up with this cup in his hand and he talks about this wine being his blood and he says, drink it. He's saying, I'm not going to just sprinkle it on you. I want it to be embedded in you. I want my blood, my life to not just be something that's, that's uh, uh, philosophical, to not just be something that's, that's out there. I want it to be something that impacts you, that comes in you. What is this new covenant that Jesus talks about? In Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through about 34, 35, God is promising Israel that he's about to do a new thing. He's about to do a, a new covenant with them. But in Hebrews chapter 10, the writer of Hebrews takes that covenant and he explains what that covenant is, but he expounds on it in an even, even greater way. The whole chapter of Hebrews chapter 10 is just a, a wonderful chapter. But verses 16 through 18 says this, this covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their heart and write them on their mind. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. So God had promised in Jeremiah that he was going to do a new thing. And what was that new thing? It was that he was going to take the, the heart of stone that each, each Israelite was born with. And for those who, whom he chose, that he would take their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. That he would work and operate in their hearts. That he would give his people the desire that they need to love him and to live for him. But not only that, he, he promises that he will provide forgiveness and reconciliation through one sacrifice. He promises that the sacrificial system that people look to now and that people falsely put their hope in, that one day it will end. So as Jesus is standing up and as he proclaims this bread, he's saying this bread represents my affliction, the affliction that I'm about to take it. It represents my body, which is about to be broken for you. And this wine represents my blood that is going to be shed for many, not for a few, but for many. And it represents a new covenant, a new promise that those who say that they are God's people, that they will clearly know that the only way that they are God's people is because God has done something in their heart. Because God has done something great for them. Now, what's amazing about this is that in all four Gospels, this meal is hit on. And, and everything doesn't appear in all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But all four Gospels talk about this meal. And in all four Gospels, we know that this is a Passover meal turned into what we call the Lord's Supper. But what's interesting is this, is that the Passover meal was centered around a main course. The bread was cool. The wine was cool. But what the main course was at this meal was the lamb. People would go 
and they would find the best lamb that they could. They, the Jews, they took pride in finding that lamb and cooking the lamb a, a very specific way. But in none of the four Gospels is a lamb mentioned. In none of the four Gospels does, does they, do they talk about the spread that was on the table. Maybe, maybe they didn't get the lamb. Maybe Jesus said, we're going to do something different this year, and they're just there by faith. Or maybe the lamb was there. But the authors wanted to point out that that was not the main course. The main course of that meal was Jesus. Because Jesus is the Passover lamb. Jesus is the main course. Isaiah says that he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led towards the slaughter. Do you remember what John the Baptist said? When he saw Jesus in the midst of ministering, Jesus came on the scene and he pointed, he stopped what he was preaching and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is the main course. From the very beginning, from the very beginning of this exodus, God had Jesus in mind. As they were slaying those lambs, saying, what sense does this make? What did this woolly, cute, fuzzy animal ever do to us? As they were taking that blood and sobbing it and putting it on the doorpost, saying, we don't get this. God said, you don't get it now, but there will be a generation of people who will get it in the future. That woolly lamb represented our precious Savior and the blood that he would spill for us. For us, a lot of us think that God operates off of plan B and plan C. Some of us think that, that Sandy surprised God and now God is in heaven trying to fix everything and make everything right. God does not operate off of plan B or C. God is always on plan A. John says in the book of Revelation that before the very foundation of the world, that a lamb was slain. Before God spoke in the beginning, before God spoke and said, let there be like God had a plan to allow his son to die the death that you and I deserve in order that we would be able to have a life that we could never afford in our own merit, an abundant life. God never has a plan B or C. God knew exactly what man would do in that garden, but he had a plan to show off his love for his creation. What Jesus does is, a, is he substitutes himself for us. He is a, a substitutionary sacrifice. And I'm telling you, there is nothing more amazing than someone who substitutes themselves for another person, who sacrifices themselves in order that another person would be out of harm's way. Our hearts are motivated by acts like that. Those people are who we celebrate. That's who we call heroes. Imagine this scenario. There is a manager at a job, and his manager gets wind that uh, after things had went wrong one day at work, where there was a, a big emergency on the floor, that one person, a guy by the name of Jason, that he was really one that's responsible for things not uh, falling in place. Jason 
is a good worker, kind-hearted man, has a, a young family, an emergency happens, and he kind of freaks out. He's supposed to know protocol in this situation, but he doesn't. The manager knows that he has to write Jason up, and in writing Jason up, Jason is going. He is going to be fired. But another worker, an older man who has tenure, who has respect with the company, stands up. And he goes into the manager's office and he says, yeah, I, I heard about what you guys are thinking about doing with Jason and that you're about to write him up. And I want to say, yes, Jason did make a big mistake, but I, I want to be written up. Because while he was making that mistake, I could have intervened and told him, Jason, I think you're forgetting protocol. I know that Jason didn't do this on purpose, and I've been here for a way longer time than Jason. It was my responsibility to remind this young worker of what we're supposed to do when things like this happen. If that manager listens, and if that man saves Jason's job, and if Jason is a person who has been given a heart of gratitude, that man in Jason's eyes will be a hero. Jason will relate to that man a different way because that man sacrificed his life, his, his job, his, his reputation in order that Jason would be able to still have benefits and provide for his family. Tim Keller told of a story uh, that he had read that appeared in the National a Geographic publication. Uh, after a, a forest fire in Yellowstone National Park, uh, there were some forest rangers who began to take a trip up a mountain to survey the, da the damage. And one ranger found a bird. And, and when he found the bird, it, it had nothing left on it. It was just carbonized, petrified shell. And it was covered in ashes. And it was huddled under the base of a tree. And somewhat sickened by this horrible sight, the ranger kind of just knocked the bird over a little bit with a stick. And from underneath the bird, three tiny chicks scurried out and came out from under the dead mother's wing. Because when the blaze had arrived, the mother had remained steadfast and running. And because she had been willing to do so, her children lived. And when we come around the Lord's Supper table, we celebrate the fact that Jesus did not run from what God had assigned for him. We celebrate the fact that Jesus allowed God's wrath to be poured out on him so that he could gather his children together like a mother hen gathers her children together. In Jesus we have refuge. In Jesus, we have salvation. In Jesus, we have a secret place. In Jesus, we have safety. And when we come to celebrate the Lord's Supper, we come remembering what Jesus did for us. For some of us, what I've just said is, is, too, is, is too normal. We, we hear it too much, right? We're past that. That's what we think. But the reason why Jesus said do this often 
is because he knows that our hearts is wicked and he knows that our hearts is going to try to make this a ritual and our hearts is going to try to evade this and, and going to try to say that what we need in order to live an abundant life is not the cross, it's too bloody, it's not the gospel, it's too old, that what we need is psychology or a psychiatrist or a new boo or a better job. But Jesus says, no, I want you to come together often and I want you to remember this sacrifice that I made for you. I want you to remember the, the fact that I substituted myself for you in order that you would have a thriving and ongoing relationship with the one who created you, with the one who loves you. I pray today that the Lord would freshly apply the blood of Christ to the doorpost of our hearts and mind and that he would give us a deep sense of what this meal means. Number one, I pray that he will give us a deep sense when we take these elements in, in a few minutes, that he will give us a deep sense of us feasting on Christ. Of us feasting on Christ. Think about this. The two things that Jesus left behind for us to do as a church, the two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, they both are extremely engaging. They both appeal to our senses. Baptism. Take a person, you stand them in water, you dump them in water, and they come up just dripping wet. Appeals to our visual senses. Appeals to, to us, our, our, our sense of, of touch. The Lord's Supper. Appeals to the sense of, of taste. God wants us to be reminded of his goodness and to experience his goodness. Jesus told the disciples when they took the bread and when they took the wine, he says, take it. Take it. He wants it to be embedded in us. He wants it to be a part of us. He wants to engage us. He wants Every time we take the Lord's Supper, it is a reminder of the importance of feasting on the good news that Jesus died in our place. And he's given us an, a, an eternal relationship with the Father as, as an heir. He wants us to be reminded of that and to, to engage in that and to be a part of that. Every time we take and eat, we should be remembering the promises of God. That's what this represents, the very promises of God. Every time we eat, we should be remembering the fact that we are saved by grace and not by works. We should be remembering the fact that there is a promise that nothing can separate us from the love of God. We should be remembering the fact that God promises that if we confess our sins, that he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from unrighteousness. When we engage in this table, we should not be engaging this in this table with a sense of guilt and, and dirtiness and, and shame. We should be engaging in this table, reminding ourselves that because of what Jesus did for us, that we are no longer condemned, that we are free, that God loves us, and that he has saved us by grace. We should be reminded when we eat that the Lord really is our shepherd. That the Lord really will provide for us. That Jesus really is our advocate. That he really is our high priest. That he really is our friend, our brother, our Lord, and our king. We should be reminded that we are fully accepted by God in spite of us. In spite of what I said to Nuke Nuke and Bebe. 
in spite of the struggle that I'm having with my husband or with my wife, that there is one who accepts me and who treasures me. We should be reminded that he is the author and the finisher of our faith and that no one can pluck us from his hand. When we partake in the communion and we take and eat and we take and drink, we are allowing what Jesus has accomplished for us to set in with us. And we are tasting and we are seeing afresh that he is good. Number two, there should be a deep sense of family, a deep sense of family. This is amazing. It's amazing what we see in Scripture. When we understand the historical significance of Passover, it's it's, it's absolutely amazing. Jesus, in this text, he tells Peter and John, that's what another gospel says. He says, I want you to go into Jerusalem, and you'll see a man carrying a jar on his head. And I want you to follow that man. And as he goes in the house, there's going to be a master in the house. And I want you to tell the master that that I'm ready to come uh, to eat. And that person will have a table prepared for you. Now, Jesus takes his disciples up into what's called a large room. Now, it's important that we understand that this is a big deal. Because, again, a Passover meal was only spent, spent, uh, spent with your family. These men were probably expected to be at a meal and to be presiding over a meal. Some of them was the, the elder presider over the meal. Some of them, just three, four years ago, was, was the ones who were, 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 were going over the meal with their family. And now Jesus has taken them away from their natural family and has them in another room. A large room. I would argue that the disciples are not the only ones in the room. I would argue that maybe uh, that it's possible that their wives and their children are, are there. Why do you need such a a large room for 12 people? In fact, later on in the Gospels, we read that there were some women who were accompanying accompanying Jesus and the disciples wherever they went. So it's possible that Jesus is at this supper, at this meal with his disciples close and the family all around. When we come and when we take the Lord's Supper, we come and we gather together as family. And I pray that when we take the Lord's Supper that we will have a deep sense of family. To a lot of us in here, we don't see each other as family unless we're blood related. We just see each other as church members, as people, I, yeah, I kind of know her face. And some of us, we just run in and we run out every Sunday and we can name five people in here if I paid you. Because we think that Christianity is all, our walk with God is all about us. It's a personal thing. But the Bible says no. Those who have given their life to Jesus, those who have Uh, Look to faith, look to to the Lamb of God and the blood that he shed by by faith that they are now adopted into the family of God. And we are are a new family, a real family. One day Jesus was preaching. In the middle of preaching, his family tried to interrupt him. Got one of the disciples because they thought Jesus had lost his mind. Spending all these time with these people. So they said, we're going to take Jesus back home. Jesus looked at the disciples and said, you tell them that I'm with family. Because the person that does the will of my father is my family. And all when we eat this of the supper, may we remember that this is your new family. That yes, we have family members who 
who don't know Jesus, and yes, they are a biological family, but you are a part of a new spiritual family. And that new spiritual family actually has precedence over the old carnal family. May we eat with a deep sense of family. Number three, may we eat with a, a deep sense of personal examination. A deep sense of personal examination. This is absolutely magnificent. Verse 17, and when it was evening, he came with the twelve and as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Then they began to, then they, I'm sorry, they began to be sorrowful and to say to him, one after another, is it I? And he said to them, it is the one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into this dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. So they're getting ready to, to have, they're probably in the, in the middle of this meal, right before Jesus takes this Passover and makes it to something even more significant. And Jesus just busts out. He's like, yo, one of y'all about to be, one of you guys are about to betray me. One of you all is about to betray me. Now, he knew who would betray him. But he put it out there. Because he wanted each person to come to grips with their own depravity. With their own sinfulness. By now, they are learning from Jesus that they really aren't all that. And they all say, is, is it I? One by one, is it I? Is it I? They begin to examine themselves. Oh, my goodness. One of us is about to betray. One of us is about to betray our Lord. Is it I? Is it I? Is it I? That was a, a good question to ask. But as we come to the Lord's table, I think we need to ask a different question. Lord, how is it me? How is it me? Because each of us, from the last time that we gathered to celebrate this meal, we have betrayed Christ. Each of us have fallen short of the glory of God. When we gather around this meal, we want to look in our own hearts and say, is it I? You guys remember the story of Achan in Joshua chapter 7? Man who went to war with Israel, who disobeyed God, who stole a treasure from, his, from the enemy. When God said, don't steal it, there's a nice coat, stole some silver, stole some gold, buried it. He steals it, then buries it under his tent. Sin, right? Can't enjoy sin, only for a little while. He buries it in his tent. Then the elders of Israel, God gets Joshua up. He says, I want every single person in Israel to stand before the elders, and I want you to examine every single one of them. And every single one of them stood there in fear under self-examination. When we partake in the Lord's table, it is time for us to, to examine our own hearts. Some of us, we, we just go through and we take the Lord's table, supper and we, we don't stop and we don't reflect its significance. Some of us, are, our, our marriages are falling apart because we are prideful, because we've got a, 
a, a, a, a chick on the side, a dude on the side. Some of us are just stubborn. We're rude at work. Some of us is harboring bitterness and unforgiveness in our heart. When we come to the Lord's table, it is a time where often we get to ask ourselves that question, just like Judas, Lord, is it I? Lord, don't allow me to become hard like Judas. Judas had an opportunity to change. He had an opportunity to reflect on the gospel, to reflect on Jesus' goodness and Jesus' promise, but he just chose not to. Amy Carmichael said, great, great woman of God, if you've never read anything by her or about her, I encourage you to read about her or to read something that she's written. She says, if they knew me like I knew myself, they would have the most scandalous information on me, for I am unworthy. This was a woman who has been held throughout the generations of being a godly woman. And yet when she thought about herself, she didn't think about herself as this great godly person and what she could do. She thought about herself as a sinner that has only been saved by God's grace. Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, talks about the Lord's table in that discourse. And he's getting on the church of Corinth because they have now just taken it as a ritual. In fact, they've taken it more than a ritual. They come together and they eat this supper and they're getting drunk. And he says, y'all gather together, y'all getting drunk, y'all just eating. You're not, you're not being respectful. There's divisions among you. There's factions among you. There's bitterness in your heart. And then he says this, as a result of you coming to the Lord's table this way, some of you are sick and some of you have even died. Why? Why does God afflict people with sickness who claim to be Christian but who takes this, these elements lightly? And why do some people even die? Psalm 32, the psalmist talks about it. He talked about how when he allowed his sin to remain a secret, how his bones ached and, and rusted away. Talked about how his life and his innermost parts of his heart, of, of, his, of his body, ached because bitterness and sin has its effects on us, not just spiritually, but mentally as well as physically. Some of you in here are going through physically, and you've been going through for years. Not all of you, not all, not all the time. But, but some of us, the reason we're going through so much is because we take this meal lightly. And by taking this meal lightly, it's not just by taking when we eat and drink it, it's that we are missing the opportunity when we do it once a month, we are missing the opportunity to reflect afresh on God's grace. To remind ourselves that God has saved us by grace in order that we could live for him. That Jesus gave up his life in order that we would give up ours for him. And we eat and we drink while we are embedded in habitual sin. We are all sinners. Every disciple at the table was a sinner. In fact, right after they ate the meal, every disciple... Not just Judas. Every disciple betrayed Jesus. Every disciple left him. But the difference between them and Judas is that they betrayed him out of cowardness 
even though they genuinely loved him, where Judas never was with them. This table is not a table for those who are perfect or those who are saints. This table is a table for those who are saved by grace. When we come to the table, we must come with humility, knowing that Jesus gave up his life for us. Finally, we eat this meal with a deep sense of anticipation. A deep sense of anticipation. Verse 25, Jesus says, Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Anticipation. Jesus tells the disciples that one day they're going to drink wine with him again. But it is going to be in the kingdom of God. It is going to be once he returns. When we come and when we eat of this table, we have to allow, when we take it, we have to allow the fact that life is not going to always be this way set in. We have to allow it to get into the core of us. That God is in the process of making everything right. That one day we will celebrate in the new Jerusalem with Jesus. That one day cancer will be no more and sin will be no more. If we believe in Jesus, if he's more than just a a philosophical thought or a theoretical idea, if he is truly our Lord and Savior, the one who we look to faith to, then we have to look to his words and believe his words. Believe it. Jesus' last words in Revelation chapter 22, this is what he says, verse 7, And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Behold, I am coming soon. His next sentence, behold, I am coming soon. Bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Verse number 20, surely, I'm coming soon. Some of you are just trapped right now. Miserable. Not living the abundant life. Are you living the abundant life? The reason why, and despite your situation, we, we can bloom where we're planted. Despite your situation. As a Christian, God gives us the power to prosper, the power to to have abundant joy. So Jesus said, this joy I give you, the world cannot take it away. John 15. But the reason why we don't have joy, the reason why we're trapped, the reason why we're running to everything but Jesus, other than on weekends, is because we have not taken the advantage of remembering what Jesus has done for us often. Jesus says, as often as you do this. I'll be honest. As a church, I think we don't do it often enough. As often as you do this, you do this in remembrance of me. What is he saying? You do this in remembrance of my faithfulness and my commitment to you.
and know that I'm coming soon. There's someone here today who does not have a relationship with Jesus, meaning that you have not allowed the blood of the Lamb to be applied to your heart. You have not looked to Jesus' sacrifice in faith. And I want to tell you today that we offer salvation to you. We want to give you a chance to come into a, a relationship with Jesus, to accept Jesus by faith. This meal that we're getting ready to take is a meal for believers. If you haven't, Yet, giving your heart to Jesus, we anticipate the day where one day you will be able to partake in this meal with us. Uh, Today, we ask you not to partake in it, but we do urge you, just as Moses urged Pharaoh, we do urge you, we do urge you to put your faith and trust in Jesus. Let's pray. Uh, Gracious Father, you are good. We thank you for this meal. We thank you, Father God, for what your son did for us, for allowing him to sacrifice himself for us in order that we could have life with you under your rule and under your care. I pray, Father God, that as we get ready to to take this meal and and take these elements, that you will allow them to become embedded in us, that you would give us a deep sense of feasting on Christ in our hearts, a deep sense of of family, a deep time of self-examination, a deep time of anticipation. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to ask the officers to come at this time as we're going to prepare to take our Lord's Supper. If you're